in chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your, uh, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and whoever blesses you, I will bless, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed by you. So Abram did, just as the Lord had said, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, and he took with him his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for Canaan. And they arrived there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. The book of Joshua tells us that Abram came from a, a family that worshipped idols. But we don't know much more about that. But there is a tradition that says that Abram's father actually made a living making these idols, making these little God statues uh, to sell to people. And so as the story goes, one day uh, his father had to be away from the shop, and, and so Abram is minding the store. And so a person comes in and wants to buy a little idol. And so Abram says to the person, how old are you? And the person says, well, I'm 50. And Abram says, you'd think at 50 years old you'd know better than to believe that some wooden statue can talk or think or do anything for you. Well, the person was surprised and, and left. Another person came in and Abram asked them the same question, how are you? And, and they said, well, I'm 60. And Abram said, 60. And in 60 years, have you ever seen one of these wooden statues speak anything or do anything or move anywhere? And the person was surprised and, and left. Then another person came in, a woman, and she came in with a bag of bread that she wanted to offer to one of the idols there one of the false gods, in the shop. And so Abram uh, took the bread, she left. And then Abram took a, a, a hammer and started smashing all the false gods that his father had built. And then he took the hammer and put it in the hand of one of the false gods that he left standing and put the bread in front of him. And so his father came back and asked Abram, what happened? And he said, well, he said, a woman brought in uh, this bread uh, for the idols. And, well, this idol wanted it and wanted it so bad that he smashed all the other idols so that he could have the bread. And his father said, that's ridiculous. These statues can't think or, or move or act. To which Abram responded to his father, then why do you make them and worship them? I love that story. And I love it for a couple reasons. One, because it reminds us of the nature of Abram, who probably was the first great monotheist in the scripture. The first person to, to believe and adhere to the one true God. But also simply because when we meet Abram, he's 75 years old, and we don't know anything about him. So at least now we get a little glimmer, if the tradition is true, into something that had happened in the first 75 years of his life before we meet him here in chapter 12. But it did get me to thinking and to wondering, why is it that we don't know anything about Abram's first 75 years? Some scholars call this the silent years. Why are Abram's first 75 years so silent? And the, the short answer is, I don't know. But, but one of the possibilities that intrigues me is this. And that is, it is the Bible's way of saying that Abram's life does not really start until he hears the voice of God and responds to that voice. 
that that is what really counts and what really matters. And it gets into gear when he hears the voice of God and acts on it. It reminds me of what the late John Claypool used to say uh, about God. And, and Claypool would say, our God is not near as interested in who we have been than in who we may yet become. And I think the Bible's telling us that. It's, it's Abram's future from the point that he hears the call and acts, that, and acts on it. That's what really counts. And so Abram uh, hears that call. And acts on it. Now, you need to know that's a pretty big risk because he's being asked to leave everything he knows and holds dear. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people, that is your friends, your community. I want you to leave your father's household, the family you grew up with. I want you to leave it all behind. Then he says, and go to the place that I will show you. Interestingly, God never tells Abram at the start where they're going. You know, I always thought if God's voice spoke to us that God would give all the details and, and fill it all in. So God might say to me, David, I want you to go to Austin. Now, to get there, you're going to have to get on 35, and you're going to have to go through these towns, and you're going to know you're there when you see this big uh, building with a rotunda on top or, or whatever, and it would be described to me. But what I realize in the story this morning is basically it's probably going to happen more like this, that God's going to come and say to me or to you, David, I want you to get on 35 and keep going, and I'll tell you when you get there. And that's a risk to leave everything that he knows and to not even know the exact place where he's going. But Abram goes. But you need to know this. Not only was there a great risk, there was a great promise attached. And God said this. God said, look, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to make your name great. And all the people of the earth will be blessed by you. It's like God looks at these three things that Abram's been asked to give up. Country, uh, friends, and family, and says, I'm going to take those and I'm going to exchange them for you with three things even greater. And that you'll have a family that uh, bigger than what you've ever imagined. And that the entire world will actually be blessed by your obedience. And so Abram sets off on this risky journey this journey of hearing God's call and responding. Now, as I think about that, it, it tells me a couple basic things that I think you need to know since we're talking about listening to God's voice. And the first one is this, that God's voice is usually going to send you on a journey. That usually if God speaks to you, it's not going to be, stay right here where you are and don't do anything, think anything, don't change one bit, just stay right here until... I come back for you and you die or, or the world ends or, or whatever the scenario is. You hear that voice, it's not God's. God's voice always sends the people on a journey. I remember several years ago, Scott and I were having like a dialogue sermon, our pastor at Riverside. And so I said to him, Scott, do you think journey is a good metaphor for the life of faith? And I'll never forget his response because he looked at me and he, we hadn't rehearsed this. He looked at me and he said, journey is the metaphor for the life of faith. Look at the, and the people in the Bible, they're always on the move. Adam and Eve have to leave Eden. Cain wanders the earth. Noah ends up uh, floating uh, on an ark. Uh, the people of Babel end up scattered, leaving Babylon and, and taking, uh, and, and taking uh, different paths across the earth. Then there's Abram who has to leave uh, Ur the Chaldees and then Haran and, and make his way toward what 
where he'll end up, which is Canaan. And then there's Jacob, his grandson, who's going to leave and go to Laban and then have to journey all the way back and cross the Jabbok River and face his brother Esau. And then there's Joseph, who starts out in uh, the Holy Land, ends up in Egypt when the whole world has to come to him to eat. And then the people end up, the people of God, slaves in Egypt. And then, of course, we know that they will leave Egypt, cross the Red Sea, go into a wilderness journey, and then on to the promised land. Then they'll be tossed out of the promised land. They'll go to uh, Babylon. They'll regather in uh, Jerusalem and Galilee. They'll be scattered again. Jesus himself ends up on a journey. Raised and in his early ministry in Galilee, and then he makes the fateful journey to Jerusalem and Judea, where he will challenge the world as it currently exists, turn it on its head, and be crucified for it. And then there's Paul, converted while he's traveling to Damascus, and he'll end up in his life on three great missionary journeys. Basically, if you're one of the people of God, you're going to be on a journey. Now, I think it's the same for us. Now, the journey is not always geographic. Sometimes it's an emotional journey, a spiritual journey, uh, a journey in vocation. Uh, it, it could be any number of places, but we are dislodged from where we are to where God needs us to be. The life of faith is and always has been. A journey of listening to God's call and responding to that call. And it's not easy. The journey is always with uh, great difficulty. If God lays out a yellow brick road for you on your journey, then you better watch for the flying monkeys. Because that's the nature of the journey. It is a challenge. It is, it is a difficulty. It is always a risk. But it is also always a blessing. And maybe the great point of the passage and the call of Abraham this morning is not just that a man heard God's voice and in obedience risked everything to follow that voice. But maybe the point is what happened because of it. That all sorts of blessings took place. And we tried to establish at the end of the service last week of the sermon that perhaps the main reason God speaks to us is so that God's uh, world will be blessed so that people have opportunity to experience what God wants them to experience, to enjoy what God has them there to enjoy. So that we go on a journey, not just for our own sake, but we go on a journey for the sake of others. And some of the journeys are obvious and maybe others are less obvious. I, I was at a meeting Thursday and at lunch I, I was um, at a corner of a table and I was like, uh, in, in one position, and on one side was one guy, and, and um, on the other side of me, another guy. And the guy on this side of me said, you know, I never have thanked you. He's a pastor of a very large church in Dallas, and they have, um, in fact, they raised millions and millions of dollars to build a high-tech worship facility in addition to their sanctuary so that they could have a, um, a, what they call a contemporary worship service. And he said, I don't know if you know that. But if it weren't for New Heights and Scott Hare, we would have never gotten to where we are today. And they probably have about a thousand people that are in this high-tech facility um, every week. Uh, and I smiled as if I didn't know that. But I did. But I did. But I also remember that when we set out 
to, um, uh, to create an alternative uh, worship experience in the gym. It was a risk. And not everybody liked it and not everybody wanted to do that. And we thought it was for ourselves and for our children or our grandchildren. And then we find people 300 miles north that do what they do because we did what we did. And then on the other side of me, a little bit late in the conversation, is a pastor of a large church in Houston. And he said, and he was talking about one of our former interns who is uh, one of the pastors on his staff. And he said, I have to tell you, your church did a wonderful job in one summer of training him and preparing him for what he does with us today. Now, you may or may not remember, but for five years, we took a different intern from Duke every summer. And, and we listened to maybe their very first sermon they would ever preach. And their first hospital calls. And their first everything they went through. And people sacrificed from those who hosted in their homes to those of you who took them to lunch and got to know them and, and everything. And you may not have even thought it was a risk at the time. But it was. And the end result is hundreds and hundreds of people in the church in Houston are blessed partly because of what risk we took one summer back, I think, in 2006. The point of risk is always the blessing of other people. That's why we follow. That's why we go. And in fact, uh, we need to know that uh, God's intention is not to rest or have us rest till everybody is blessed. I remember Frederick Beekner's uh, story years ago. He's a, a wonderful Christian writer. You may have heard of him. Uh, years ago, in the early 80s, he signed his, uh, or late 70s, his first book contract. Book contract and in advance. And he's at the top of this high rise in New York City, signing and getting the check. And he comes to the elevator and he gets ready to go down. And there, cleaning floors in the hall, is somebody with whom he went to college. They both went to the same school, had the same major, desired to impact the community in the same way. And their paths were on such divergent uh, directions. And as he realized this person who wasn't enjoying all that he's enjoying with his first contract and his first check, he said suddenly the check just didn't seem as nice. The contract just wasn't as great. He said, something in me told me that there is no complete joy for any of us until there is joy for all of us. Now, I'm very much in favor of joy, and I think you need to celebrate the good things that happen to you in your life and the relationships that you have and the opportunities you have. You need to celebrate the heck out of them. But you also need to know that your joy is not complete because there are those in our midst who can't read, those who don't have enough to eat, those who go to bed lonely and won't haven't talked with another living person all day. Those who will, nighttime will come and they'll have no bed. And until those things are dealt with, our joy is not complete. God's purpose of our journey has always been the blessing of others. Walter Brueggemann said this about Abraham. He said, when you think about Abraham, vertically he is very exclusive. Abraham is not going to worship any idols or other gods or any competition for the one true God. He is extremely exclusive in this way. But in his life, blessed and used by God, horizontally, he is very inclusive. He knows his job is to bless the earth. And everyone on a journey since then 
has the same deal. As close as we can get following God with as much devotion and intentionality as we can bring to it. And as much love and inclusion of others as we can bring as well. But something interesting happens, not just in the world, but something interesting happens to us. I told you we really didn't know anything about Abram's 75 years, for 75 years. That's not exactly true. In chapter 11, we know two things about him. Number one, he doesn't have any children. He and Sarah have been married for years. They have no family. And in the ancient world, that, that was your eternal life in a sense. That was how your posterity went on. And so he's got no future in that regard. The other thing we know is that originally when he left Chaldea, he wanted, for whatever reasons, to go to Canaan. And then he stopped in Haran and he built a life there and he was settled and everything was good when God called him. What happened? Besides the world being blessed, two things. He received a child who had a child who had, and he became the father of many, many Many descendants as numerous as the stars. And the second thing is, where did he end up? He ended up in Canaan, where he had set out originally to go so many years before. I believe that if you follow the voice of God on your journey, you will find that ultimately the place that you end up may be surprising to you, but it will touch a place in your heart and you will know deep down that you always wanted to be there. That this was the very spot God had intended for you to be in your life. When the voice of God calls, we listen. We follow. So that others are blessed. And not surprisingly, we find ourselves blessed in the process.